Morning, church. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So I was listening to an interesting conversation this week. I was listening to my niece talk about her experience as a high school student working at a custard shop in, in St. Louis. And the struggle that they're having is the problem of um, not having enough workers. They can't find people to fill the jobs. And so she was talking through all of the challenge of, that, that their manager was having about covering the shifts and getting all the people in the right place and 
you know, having this business model that's built around having a certain number of people for any given shift to be able to cover all the jobs and all the craziness that she has to go through. And the ripple effect, when they're short-staffed, it makes the job harder. The, he can't approve days off, and he can't approve as a flexible schedule. So then some people say, well, I'm done with this job. I quit, which makes the problem even worse. What she was describing, of course, is this problem that's been kind of nationwide right now. So there's a whole lot of unfilled jobs because of all of the economics with COVID and, and the way that that had a ripple effect and different you know, policies and whatnot. So now businesses and governments are all trying to change and adapt to to a, a, a labor pri- a crisis where they have a lot of work that needs to be done, but not enough people willing to do the work. I was reading about a, a you know, a, a guy that runs a, you know, a, a fruit business, and he ha- says he's got thousands of acres of fruit that's just rotting in the field because he can't hire anybody to come pick it. Um, and, and they're all wrestling with how do you get people to go back to work. And I, so I wonder in this time where that, that's kind of thing, a pattern, that's going on around us, if we're experiencing a little bit uh, of, a, of, a, of a demonstration of what this metaphor is here in this, one of the more famous quotes out of Luke, where, where Jesus says the harvest is plenty, but, but the laborers are few, that, that Jesus opens us up to think about the world that we live in and the world here at the time in the first century as a field ripe for ministry. There's fruit for the picking. For anyone that can show up and will be willing to pick it. And the limitation is only not whether there's fruit available, what, not whether there's something to be had, but it's limited only by the number of people willing to engage in the harvest. And, and I think that's a kind of moment where it, it calls us to kind of reevaluate how we see life as a Christian, life in God's kingdom. Do we see ourselves as Jesus invites his followers to see themselves there? Do we see ourselves as harvesters? Are we ready for the harvest time? Now, if you don't have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to open them to Luke 10. This, it's a big section. There's a lot of ground we're covering here. Uh, but it all hangs together. And it really is, I think it's something, it's, it's a, a good text to try to read in one bite uh, because of the ways that these themes kind of run through the whole thing. But if you're there in Luke 10, you may hear an echo if you've been around the last few weeks. This sure sounds like something real similar, uh, because at the, actually at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus did the same thing. Luke records Jesus sending out not 70 or 72, but sending out 12. He sent out the disciples, and when he sends them out at the beginning of chapter 9, he empowers them in the same way that he's been empowered to do the same things that he's done. He sends them out with the ability to cast out demons, the ability to heal, he charges them to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, cast out demons. And the twelve do. They do all the things that Jesus has been doing, and they experience remarkable success. And here in chapter 10, you see the same kind of thing happening. And what's interesting about that is one of the features that Luke has in his writing is he really is resistant to repeat himself. Some of the other gospel writers tend to repeat themselves. They like to have pairings of things. Luke tends not to repeat himself much. So the fact that he's repeating himself, and really he's written this first section here, he's framed this to really echo what happened at the beginning of chapter 9. We're thinking about those two things together. The difference, of course, one of the big differences is that there in chapter 9 he's talking about the 12, and here he's talking about either 70 or 72, and your Bible will, will have different numbers there. And the reason for that is 
very early on, there was one original one number, and very early on in the church, in the manuscripts, there was like this division, and somebody wrote, either it was 70 and they wrote 72, or there was 72 and they wrote 70, and there's some good reasons why either one might happen, and it's a lot of textual um, debates, usually there's pretty, if you go to the early manuscripts that we have, it's pretty easy to resolve the divide. And sometimes the division that happens when they're divided is not because there really isn't a good answer. It's the fact that the wrong answer kind of got used for a long time and kind of, you know, in popular translations was circulated. This isn't that case. This is actually a legitimate debate. And you'll see modern translations. Most modern translations will list 72. There's a handful, I think the New American Standard. Uh, there's a couple others that will use 70. Either one is possible, and either one makes thematic sense. This is why it's really hard to resolve it, because there's a lot of ways that when you see transmission discrepancies, when there's a copying error, there's, re there's ways that you resolve that, but thematically, either one could make sense. If he's talking about 70, then what it's an echo of is of Moses. Moses had 70 elders that he gathered around him. And so it would be, this section would be presenting Jesus as a kind of Moses figure, gathering the elders for this great mission that he's on, which of course is exactly what Luke has been talking about the last few chapters. Jesus as a Moses figure has been one of the dominant themes. Or, more common translation today is that it's 72, and if he's talking about 72, then he's sending out the number 72 would represent, there's several Old Testament references that see 72 as the traditional number of the nations of the world. There's 72 nations in the ancient world, and at least the way they would kind of poetically talk about it. And so when he's sending out 72, it's as if he's representing a, a, a mission that is to go to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what Luke talks about here, especially by the time we get to Acts. This is a movement of people that is going to go explicitly to the ends of the earth. Jesus will charge them to go to the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1. Um, so either theme works. Either theme is there in Luke. Uh, you'll, if you like one of them, you're going to have the other theme you're going to have to contend with too in other texts. So I think the key is that he's gathering this large team out. He's sending them out in mission that pictures him going wide, casting a wide net. He is sending out laborers and he's expanding the group that's empowered by Jesus. Um, their, their work here is to go out um, and know that the, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. But then verse 2, therefore they're praying earnestly to God, to the Lord of the harvest, to send out labors into the harvest. And so he sends them out. And as he sends them out, what he's doing is sending them out to find more laborers. That's really the key of this, these opening verses is he's getting us to imagine what it is to be part of God's kingdom. That if you're part of God's kingdom, you're one of the laborers. You are being called into a life of service as part of God's kingdom that we all have a part to play. And as we tell others about Jesus, when others respond to Jesus, they're becoming one of the harvesters. They're part of a labor group. There isn't a working group here in Jesus' kingdom and those who are non-working. Everyone's working. We're all part of this. And when he sends them out here, this is an echo of what we saw with the 12. Verse 3, he sends them out with a kind of urgency and expectancy. 
They travel light. Verse 4, they carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. They're greeting no one on the road. All of that is a picture of, of just an urgent mission. We're on a mission. We don't have time to, time to stall. This is a, a key time. And when they go town to town, there is, they are dependent. Because they travel light, they don't carry anything with them. They are dependent on God's provision through the hospitality of those who are receptive to them. So it is in the reception of hospitality that people are going to indicate whether or not they're, they're on board with their message. What does it say in verse 5? Whatever house you enter, say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. It's a really interesting phrasing there. Because it's picturing the peace that they're offering, the shalom, the wholeness this desire for wholeness, that that peace is like a tangible object that when they enter a home, they're handing it to them. It's like somebody might show up for dinner bringing a gift with them. So they're showing up with this peace that they're handing with them. And if the person, the, 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 the one in the house is a son of peace, then they receive that and they welcome that gift. If not, that peace goes right back to them. So they receive the message, they receive the messenger, they indicate they're receiving the message by receiving the messenger. The son of peace, though, suggests that when they're showing up and bringing the message, God is using them to draw out who his children are. It's as if they've already been identified. There's sons of peace, you've got to go find them. You go give the message, and guess what you're going to find out along the way? God's already raised up some sons of peace. There's this partnership here in this language. Throughout this chapter 10, there's this, this partnership between their activity, between their human activity and divine sovereignty. God's in charge of the results. God's in charge of all of this. He's doing stuff behind the scenes that we don't understand. He's got the results, and yet they're actively doing their part, seeing what God is going to produce for them. That's, I think, the marriage that you see between human action and divine will that runs throughout Scripture. I think if we ever try to, to minimize one of the two, we're going to wind up in, in troubled waters. If we try to say if God is sovereign, then people do nothing. Or if we say if people are doing things, that God has to kind of bend to their will. I think you're going to miss the point. You see a partnership here, and that's a pattern you'll see throughout Scripture. But they, they do this mission. They show up as sons of peace. They're showing up to identify who the sons of peace are. They're remaining there. They're receiving hospitality. Another famous phrase that shows up a lot in the New Testament, verse 7, that the laborer deserves his wages. They're actually dependent on the hospitality of those who receive the message to, for their support. They're getting food. They're getting housing. And they're not trying to like better themselves. They're not like moving up the ladder because um, he tells them, verse 7, don't go from house to house. Same thing he told the 12 when they're going out. They're not kind of looking themselves like they're money grubbers trying to like enrich themselves. Here they are getting basic needs taken care of as they do their work. And yet, as they do their work, there are sons of peace that are coming out, but there's others that are going to be identified. And I think this is one of the themes that's happening right here throughout Luke. This, in this little section you're going to see as Jesus is preparing the disciples for his suffering, he's preparing them for Jerusalem, he's going to talk more and more about the reality of rejection. And he prepared them a little bit back in chapter 9. He told them, hey, they, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet. But now there's a whole lot more description of what can happen. Um, 
So they do their ministry. Verse 8, they enter a town, they receive you, eat what's set before you, heal the sick, say to them, so the kingdom of God has come near to you. So the kingdom of God is present as the, these followers, as the 72, are going about doing the mission. They are declaring that the reality of the kingdom of God is present now. But whenever you enter a town, verse 10, and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Same phrase, the kingdom of God has come near. So the kingdom of God has come near and it has forced a kind of choice. They don't have an option. They can't sit on the sideline. I thought over the last year a number of issues as we kind of navigated all this pandemic. It's, it was the sad thing that, you know, it's like everything became political. And one of the frustrating things is once somebody politicizes something, then it's political for everything because you've got your stance on it is read through a political lens that can be a very frustrating thing, but it does force choices. You're forced to stand. That's what's happening here. Jesus is showing up. As soon as, as his disciples say the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is present in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Messiah, then you've got to respond to it. You don't get to say, eh, I'm not sure about that. I'm just going to go live my life. I'm, I'm ignoring you. No, it's forcing a choice. And here they are either receiving them and thus receiving Jesus, or they are rejecting them, and what they are getting in response in verse 10, verse 11, is this warning of a judgment. Um, and now notice, just last chapter, chapter 9, the disciples are walking with them, they're going through Samaria, Samaritans don't receive them, they don't receive them with hospitality, the ones going before them aren't received, and they want to rain fire on them. And Jesus rebukes them, saying, no, you're not going to rain fire on them. So here, right in the next chapter, he's warning them, that a fire is coming. In fact, the, the reference he makes in verse 12 is that it's more bearable for Sodom than for that town. Well, what happened to Sodom in the Old Testament? Well, fire rained down on it. Fire and brimstone destroyed the place. He is warning them of a judgment to come, but it is not the job of the 72 to bring that judgment. Their job is not to rain down the fire, just like it wasn't the job of the 12 to rain down the fire of judgment. Their job is to preach and proclaim the kingdom, to heal the sick, to cast out the demons, and to warn them of what is to come. God's the one in charge of the judgment. When he references Sodom in verse 12, I think it's important to note that, that in their time, the first century, Sodom has become associated with sexual sin because it's appropriate association. But really the key of, in the first century, how, what Sodom was known for was because of their inhospitality, because they rejected God's messengers. That's why they were judged. Uh, and, and all of the sexual sin of, that Sodom was associated with is part of a larger problem, that they were just rebelling against God and all of his ways. But where that came to a head was when God's messengers stand before them, and they want to destroy them, actually. They reject them. Um, the kingdom of God has come near which is a message of joy and celebration for those who receive it, and it is a message of judgment, in verse 11, for those who reject it. That leads him to this interesting interlude where he gives a warning to those who are unrepentant. Verse 13, he casts these woes. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. What, what about Capernaum, verse 15? Well, we've heard of Capernaum. What's going on with Chorazin? Uh, these are Galilean towns 
Chorazin never gets mentioned elsewhere in Luke. But it, it shows up here, and all of a sudden, we're kind of reframing our understanding of the Galilean mission. Because we went from chapter, about chapter 4 to chapter 9 with Jesus in Galilee, and we kind of saw most of the time he was getting a pretty positive response from a lot of people. But it turns out, throughout that time, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these are Galilean towns where apparently they, have been, they were much less responsive to the gospel. And in fact, they are unresponsive to Jesus so that what he says is it would have been better off that, that if, if my message had been given in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Tyre and Sidon are two Gentile cities that currently there, are there in the first century, currently exist, just to the west of them. But uh, they are known in the Old Testament as this kind of representative sample of what wicked Gentile cities are. And so he's saying even a wicked place like Tyre and Sidon would have repented had they gotten the exposure that you have gotten. But you, Jewish though you are, expecting a Messiah, have rejected me. And there's this urgent warning of a judgment that's coming because their exposure to Jesus has exposed their hearts. Even the wicked would have repented now. But now, verse 14, it'll be more bearable in the judgment for that wicked, those wicked Gentile cities than for you. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. There is a judgment is coming for them. And it's a judgment that exists on God's timetable. They've got to be ready. They've got to be aware that as they've responded to Jesus, they are determining their response to the God of heaven. And then with that warning, then he turns to the disciples, verse 16, and reminds them that what their job as they go is to be emissaries. They are representatives of the king. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So as they respond to the disciples, as they respond to these 72 they are determining their response to Jesus. As they respond to Jesus, they are determining how they are responding to God. We're going to talk more on that in a minute. But then, verse 17, they come back. As they return, the 72 return, and they, it says they returned with joy. And I, I don't want you to miss that, because we've been talking a lot about judgment here. I mean, this is a, a passage that's filled with this warning of judgment and the warning of the unrepentant and a, a peace that's taken back because people won't receive it. And even as they face that kind of resistance, as they face this pushback, um, as they face rejection because they are emissaries of a king that is being rejected, they have joy because they're seeing God at work. What do they say? They return with joy. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they marvel at their power. And Jesus corrects them. I think it's an important correction. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are in heaven. When he says, I, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, there's a lot of discussion on what that might mean. 
Some see this as like Jesus saying, I remember back when Satan fell from heaven, which he was there, so that maybe that's what happened, but uh, I don't think that's what he's referring to here. He, you see Satan depicted throughout as a force of evil that's at work. You saw it early in Luke. You saw it in the temptation of Jesus. You saw that Satan was a real presence, and he's kind of fallen into the background here, but you see in the res- resistance and the rejection that's going on, there's echoes that we've already just saw it back in verse 15. You see echoes that this is Satan at work as tempter, as deceiver, leading people away from God. You're going to see it again at the end of Luke. As you're going to see Satan as this force. You're going to see Satan as a force throughout Acts. So the idea that Satan has already done, I don't think makes sense of what's happening. I think what's happening here is that Jesus is speaking prophetically, that he sees, he has seen what we saw as we studied Revelation last year. He's seen the future fall of Satan. He's seen that Satan will fall, and it it is as good as done, so much so that he sees it in the past tense. He has a vision that that, that Satan will fall, Uh, and yet, uh, and yeah, you've got power to cast out demons. You have a power and authority over all of them. You have the same power and authority that the twelve had. But that's not what you're to be excited about. And actually, I think what's happening here is this actually explains something that's really important. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 68 through 79, and you see Zechariah talk about the coming of Jesus, he talks about Jesus is bringing deliverance from their enemies. It's an odd phrase because the way they would have heard that is they think about their enemies, they're thinking about Rome. And you haven't seen Jesus do much about Rome here. You don't see Jesus taking on the emperor, taking on Caesar. You don't see any of that going on. But I think this is the explanation right here, that what's happening is that it's showing that the truth that they need to realize is that Rome is not their ultimate enemy. Rome is allied with their ultimate enemy. Their ultimate enemy is is Satan. Their ultimate enemy is, uh, the the ultimate deliverance they need is not primarily political, but spiritual. They need to be redeemed from their sin and from their rebellion against God. And if they are redeemed from their sin and their rebellion against God, God can take care of the rest of the stuff they have in their life. And I I think we need to be reminded of that too. When we live in a world that where everything gets political, we often think of what the redemption we need is a kind of political redemption. It's not. We need a spiritual redemption. And if we have that spiritual redemption, we can navigate those muddy political waters. We need a spiritual redemption. That's where the real enemy is. That's the real problem. So they marvel. They're marveling at the power they have. And he tells them, don't be impressed with it. Marvel not at their authority, but at their security. Verse 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They're not to be impressed with their power, but with the relationship that they have with God. Um, They are to build their view of self, not on their strength or on their abilities, which will fade, which will fail, but they build their sense of self on their relationship with Jesus Christ, which doesn't fade or fail. That's the anchor for their lives. I think that's the anchor for, for ours as well. They marvel not at their authority, but at their security. And then Jesus then calls them to celebrate. Well, what he does is he himself then celebrates God's choice of followers 
and the power and the relationship. And that's where he ends, verse 21. He has this prayer, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Remember Psalm 138? But you revealed them now to little children. You revealed them to the weak, to the forgotten, to the overlooked. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. A stunning statement. You see the word father five times. You see the word son three times. This is all about the relationship of father to son, of Jesus, uh, Jesus the son to God the father. This is a relationship of father and son that empowers Jesus's revelation to his followers. In fact, you notice in verse 22, Jesus is empowered to do the very thing that God does in verse, in, in verse 21. In 21, it's God that is hiding things from the powerful and revealing them to the weak. In verse 22, it is the Son who is empowered to choose who He reveals Himself to. He's the one that's empowered to go identify who those sons of peace really are. Jesus is the revealer. This is one of the strongest statements of, of who Jesus is in the book of Luke. Said one scholar, I told him in my class this morning that there's one scholar that talked about this as his basic summary. It's, it's as if at some point right here in the middle, like John came by and wrote a paragraph in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. Because John, the, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, loves to write um, big, big statements about Jesus as, as, um, as the Son of God and, and this high view of who Jesus is. Um, and he does it from the very beginning. Luke has started and has been building a picture of Jesus. And he's been slow to reveal just who Jesus is. They keep saying, you're this, and, and Jesus says, yeah, I'm that, but I'm even more. Or God says, yeah, he's that, and he's even more. We think you're a prophet. Yeah, he's a prophet, and he's more. We think you're like Moses and Elijah. Yeah, he's Moses and Elijah, and he's more. He's been one-upping, but here's his moment where he, I think he lays his cards on the table, that Jesus is empowered by God to do the things of God because it turns out the Son of God is part of the Godhead. There's this big, big vision of who Jesus is here. And they're privileged, where it ends in 23 and 24, they're privileged to be part of it. They're blessed to be part of it. Even as they will face resistance and pushback and suffering, they are blessed to see what they're seeing because God is accomplishing His purposes in this world through Jesus Christ. So what do you do with all of that? You say it's a long, big text, a lot happening. Well, three things I suggest to you. First, we need to see our role here as emissaries. We are emissaries on a mission that will divide. Um, we're on a mission, and when we join that mission, we become laborers. This is a movement in Luke from 1 to 12 to 72. Eventually, it's going to be a big old group. It's going to be 120 in the early chapters of Acts, and eventually it's going to be 3,000, and then it's going to be a group that's just scattering to the ends of the earth. That's the arc of Luke and Acts. It's a mission that involves us. We are part, we are successors of this mission right here in Luke 10. As, as we do that mission, uh, we are adding laborers who are similarly empowered by the Spirit. There isn't a hierarchy or a pecking order in God's kingdom where some of us have more power than others, and so we're more important than others. No, we're all in the same boat. We are empowered by the Spirit as co-laborers 
doing the work that he's called us. And that mission is a mission that divides. It forces a choice, and that choice has eternal consequences. It's, that's a big theme in Luke. You're, you know, we've seen it before. We're going to see it again. I'm going to try to point it out whenever we see it. That, that there's, that ultimately in Luke, there's just two categories of people. You're either with Jesus or you're not. And if you're not, you're cast out. There is judgment. It's not that there's just uh, a lot of options. There are two choices, and he's forcing that choice. You've got to make a choice about what you're going to do about Jesus. Um, and I think that's a humbling thing. We're emissaries to represent him. Because honestly, let's, let's be, tr- be honest, that's a lot of people, a lot of the struggles that people have with, um, with Christianity is not with Jesus. It's that they can't stand Christians. It's that they've encountered people that are just jerks in the name of Jesus. And we don't have to be jerks in the name of Jesus. Uh, we have to represent him well. And I think that should, we should take very seriously about how are we conducting ourselves as emissaries to represent the king. So we are not just representing ourselves. It's not our egos at stake. It's not our pride and not our success. It's him. And we want to be emissaries pointing others to Jesus. Second key is that our strength is not in our abilities, but in our relationship. We, we may do a lot for the kingdom. We may not do much. We may think like we've got talent that's just incredible and that we need to launch the world on fire. And we may find out that we don't have as much talent as we think we do. And it really, in, in Luke, context of Luke 10, it, it does not matter. It doesn't matter how capable you find yourself to be. It doesn't matter how big or how little your audience is. Um, what is important is that in Christ, you have a secure relationship. And that secure relationship that you have with Jesus is the springboard for all that you do for the, God's kingdom whether that is with a handful of people in your life, if it's with a whole big audience, if you're one that speaks to one or one that speaks to thousands, you have a secure relationship and you do your mission from that place of security. You don't have to do your work as a way of proving yourself or justifying yourself or earning your keep or earning your salvation, but in fact, from that place of security, you get to live out of that security in a relationship and do the work that you're called to do. Our strength is not in our ability, but in our relationship. That's true for us as individuals. It's true for us as a church. All we have to do is be faithful. I was having an interesting conversation this week with several different ministers, and they were struggling with different things. But one of the themes that I think we really struggle with is that several of them in different cities, they were talking about their struggle with feeling the sense of competition with other churches. We should be clear. We're not, on, we're not in competition with other Christ-exalting churches. Uh, we're actually on the same team. <laughs> I, I don't really care. If some churches get bigger, some get, churches get smaller, I want them to all be faithful representatives of the king. That's all. We're, we're on the same side. Our, our enemy is not another church. Our enemy is, is Satan <laughs> and the battle against darkness. And we are joining with others in any way we can to proclaim the kingdom of God and to advance his cause. Our strength is not in our abilities, our size, anything. Our strength is in that relationship that we build from. The third key is that our connection to Jesus is our only connection to God. I was reading this week, B.J. Thomas was an old country and pop singer, died this week, so I was listening to some of his music. He had this you know, fantastic voice, uh, really big in late 60s, uh, early mid-70s. 
Um, but he had a really remarkable conversion to Christ. He was really at the height of his success in pop music. He'd had, you know, did a big soundtrack for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and had some other successes, but he was absolutely miserable. Like, he was on the verge of dying. He's going to be one of those, like, you know, kind of quintessential rock star drug overdoses because he was, you know, running after anything he could to try to find something of meaning, even while he's having stunning success in his career. And he comes home one night after a show, and his wife um, grabs him and says, BJ, you've got to talk to this guy. And I think it was like his, their, their gardener had been telling his wife about Jesus, and she'd become a Christian. And she's like, you've got to hear this. And so the gardener explains the gospel to him, and he's like, I'm in. And he was. Like, he comes on board, and it rescues him from addiction and despair and he actually, his career then changes, and he starts actually recording some gospel music along with other pop music. But he really struggled with Christians. Uh, he had a lot of Christians that were really hard on him in the late 70s in his career, judged him for a lot of the stuff that he sang, didn't like his music, you know, all the kinds of things. He just, it was really this, this struggle that he had. But one of the things that he'd say, said in the midst of that, he's like, look, I, I, I want to be faithful in my witness. I want to tell people about Jesus. But I also recognize I think the world is too big for one religion. And I think that's a tempting thing to say. It, you want to say, well, look, I'm just going to tell you about where I'm at, and this is the Jesus that I found. But, you know, you've got your own journey. Like, kind of live and let live. I think that lack of clarity is something here, you know, almost 50 years later, we struggle with. We need to be able to say what Jesus says here that Jesus is the only way we can access the God of this universe, that Jesus is the one thing that we need, the one relationship we need. And that's what he says about himself, that there is no other way. Um, and, and we need to be gracious in explaining that. We need to be gracious as we represent him to the world. But we need to have that clarity in mind that there is no plan B. There is no better way. There's no other way. There's not even a secondary path. The only path that we have, the one thing we need in life is a relationship with the God of this universe, a redeemed relationship with the God of the universe. And the only way we get that is through Jesus Christ. That's the calling that's on us as believers. So the question is, are we willing to be harvesters? Are, uh, we have, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the one thing that every person needs, we have a secure connection to the God of this universe that comes only through Jesus Christ. That's what we have, and that's what we are empowered by the Spirit to carry out and mission into the world. We are called to call others, to tell others, to preach and proclaim the kingdom, and with acts of service to love and demonstrate uh, the beauty of God's kingdom through what we do. We are empowered by the Spirit to carry out that mission and to call forth His children, to call forth those sons of peace that God has identified. That's a harvest. And even now, the, the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. We need to see the harvest that's before us. In your life, in this week, in the relationships you have, do you see the harvest? And will you join in the labor that you have with joy and with security? Let's pray. God, I pray for our eyes to see the harvest that is before us and the faith to join in the work that you have called us to. In Christ's name. Amen. If we can do anything for you, you can come while we stand and sing.